Hey, it's Lance, your host of yesterday's concert. Before we get this episode started, I want to take 25 seconds to tell you about my other show, Jam Journals. Jam Journals is a podcast that takes you on a journey through music history, featuring live performances from some of the most iconic concerts of all time. Each episode recounts a different concert experience through a dramatic narrative that brings the memories to life with vivid detail and emotion. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane of some of the most unforgettable concerts in recent history. Jam Journals is available everywhere you get podcasts. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I mean, we went on a tour in 2010. We called it our disaster tour. And it was, uh, you know, for two months away from our girlfriends playing for no one. I mean, absolutely no one. I mean, we weren't seriously talking about breaking up. I mean, it was a lot of like random shows in Maine, you know, in July, mid-July. You know, like no one was there, you know, just... It really sort of tested us. Most, I remember playing Mercury in the van on that tour and thinking, this is a lot more exciting to me than, you know, these like just really dark jams that last 13 minutes that you got to be on. Grab your earplugs for another episode of Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode, we talk to Wes Bailey, keyboardist for Moon Taxi. We discuss my long-standing relationship with the band, their new album, Set Yourself Free, and how the band has evolved since those early days. All right, we're here today with Wes Bailey from Moon Taxi, one of my favorite bands. Been seeing them for a long time. We'll talk about that in a second. Wes, how you doing today, man? Good, man. Good to see you, Lance. Been a minute. It has been. So as is tradition on the show, we like to start with a few icebreakers. So my first one for you is, I know you got a couple of golfers in Moon Taxi, yourself included. If you had a line of golfing equipment that was sponsored by Moon Taxi, what do you think it would be and what do you think it would be called? Oh my goodness. I love the technology of, of golf clubs. I'd love to have launch it into orbit drivers with like craters <laughs> that look like moons and maybe taxi shafts, patterns on the shaft. Uh, yeah, maybe some drivers, man. You know, just send them all to Mercury or, you know, we can make oh, as many man. You know, moon taxi references and puns as we want. So, yeah, probably a golf club line. Yeah, I don't know exactly what we call it. Maybe just moon taxi golf. I don't know. I love it, man. That's fantastic. Launch it to the moon. I love it. All right, so next question. As a piano player, what's one pianist that you return to time and time again that continually blows your mind? Oh, man. Uh, there's so many. You know, I saw Elton John last year with my wife, and I kind of forgot. It. I don't know why I forgot, but the guy just rips the keys, and he's played these songs so many times now. I think he's probably bored singing them, so to keep himself entertained on stage, he's basically soloing and jamming the entire time he's singing. If you listen to just the piano, kind of try to isolate or zone in just on the piano. I mean, you listen to him playing Benny and the Jets, Philadelphia Freedom, Honky Cat. These songs, I mean, the guy is just wailing the entire time with licks. I mean, he's, he's got like five brains. It, it is unbelievable to hear that guy play. So I actually just played a recent charity event. I've got a trio that I play with. It does a lot of kind of private events and stuff like that around the Knoxville area mostly, but we did an Elton John set and uh, I kind of tried to train myself to just not just 
comp the cores, but really try to get in there and start really funky grooves and stuff. So he sort of re-inspired me to change. He's obviously been a huge influence as a piano player my whole life. But even more recently, you know, to answer your question, who I keep coming back to, you know, he, he and Billy Joel just continue to blow me away with the uh, technical ability that they have. So yeah, definitely Elton. I've been, I've had sort of an Elton renaissance in the past year. So definitely got to be him. Very cool. That's, I saw him three times on his final tour, including the final show at LA at the Dodgers Stadium. And I, I mean, I, I definitely see what you're oh, saying. Like, wow. He's he's definitely bored playing the songs, but you're right. Like he is doing the fills and keeping himself engaged on the keys. Like that's that's the only way he's doing it. Yeah. I mean, you know, and a lot of those other guys probably have pretty set parts. He's the one that kind of gets to, to kick back and cut loose. I feel like, you know, the drummers very meat and potatoes i mean they're amazing grooves they're classic you know but it's, it's very you know kind of simple stuff for the most part so he he really gets to kind of let loose it's, it's yeah that that recent tour was was fantastic and that is super cool you went to that dodgers show that was incredible i watched that on uh, disney yeah nice well so uh keep going since i just had a child i'll ask you about your children you have posted a couple of instagram videos of you jamming with your son on drums doing some fish tunes You've done ACDC Bag, Possum. What's the next song? <laughs> Man, I don't know. God, I feel like there was one more. He's got a few beats that he knows. One is like a train beat that, that works well with Possum. So maybe we'll do a little Back in the Train. has got a kind of similar groove. You know, it's a delicate thing, and you'll learn this as a father. You've got to kind of keep it fun and lighthearted. It can't get too academic or high pressure. They, it freaks them out, and they're not interested and he's actually more recently not as into the drums as he was like earlier in the year. He wants to play bass now, even though he doesn't really know what a bass is. He just says it. Um, <laughs> but he's just three years old. But he's actually starting to, much to my joy, is starting to pick up a little piano. He was playing Ode to Joy, the Beethoven melody. It's on Coco Melon. It's called The Planet Song. And I saw him picking it out completely by ear on his own. And I guess my mom said I, I was kind of similar in the sense that I didn't like the attention when I was playing. So when I'd play a piece that I was working on, I, I didn't actually start taking lessons till I was nine. But, you know, when I'd be working on something I had to have ready for my teacher, my mom would clap because the, the kitchen was connected to the piano room when I was growing up. So she'd hear everything I was playing. And, you know, I'd go, don't clap, don't hear me. You know, I, I just, it's something about it. I don't know. It's just, I guess because I knew that I'd be screwing up over and over to learn the songs. I didn't want to feel like I was on stage or it was an audience or anything. So he must have gotten that scene from me, I guess. Yeah. Seeing those videos definitely excites me for fatherhood. I can say that that's uh, my child was screaming the other morning and I put on some fish and she just started looking around in bewilderment and it was a special moment. So I'm I'm excited. I'm jealous of you. So, so last icebreaker, and then we'll get into the actual conversation. It's an easy one. When's the second volume of from the piano room going to drop? Oh my God, dude. I just finished it. Um, no way. last week. Yeah. Yeah, man. I thank you so much for asking about that. It really means a lot. I really poured a lot into that. It was something I'd wanted, I've wanted to do for a decade, uh, and just never really took the time to, I'll answer your question. It, it's very soon, actually in a, in a few <laughs> weeks, uh, the first thing drop. but it was funny kind of talking to our manager, Don, former manager, Don Van Cleve. I played him some 
pieces I was kind of working on that, you know, were a little more built out. They had drums and this and that. He's like, why don't you just strip it down? It would blow your mind how popular focus music, study music, that sort of thing is. And a lot of that to me is a little too ambient. You know, I'm more of like kind of a melody guy. You know, I like actual like composition. So I kind of did a little bit of both. It is definitely chill. And I really, my dream for, for that the whole project is, to get sheet music printed or at least have PDFs of the sheet music and people will play. Cause it's not, it's, I'd call it intermediate level piano. It's not nothing too crazy. Uh, and I probably simplified a little bit. So to that point, I actually had a, a DM come through a couple of weeks ago from a woman that lived in Ukraine, actually oh, that wow. yeah, wanted sheet music. She was a pianist and wanted sheet music for the song. I wish or only wish from that record. Of course I was like, Oh my gosh, of course I sent it right, right away. But um, anyway, yeah, so the plan for, for that next record, I've got five tunes on there. One is actually a melody or a, a piano piece that ended up becoming a track on the new Moon Taxi record called Sunbeam. It's the instrumental track that's kind of halfway through the record. I named it Moonbeam just to kind of differentiate, but uh, there's a solo piano version of that song that'll be coming out. But basically, it performed better. Those songs performed, it's actually gotten over 900 and like, 20,000 streams actually awesome. it blew me away how well it's incredibly surprised i kind of thought it'd be like just women in my grandmother's uh <laughs> ladies bible group or something but it really you know it kind of just it, it got on a few classical playlists and taking a life of its own it's streaming you know three or point five ish thousand times a day which is amazing so yeah it, it definitely inspired me to keep it going and so yeah i think we'll probably drop one or two singles a month for the next three or four months at eh, three months. And I think it'll probably drop the full equal drop probably in October. And then I'm going to record it. Breaking news. First time I'm announcing this on your podcast. I'm going to do a Christmas solo piano record as well. And I'll put that out in mid November. So oh, lots killer. of piano music. Yeah. It's like piano music, man. It's all, and it's all original Christmas stuff. It's just kind of like snowy melodies that i've had for a while that i'm like i just feels like a christmas album so maybe a couple covers we'll see but anyway so yeah i'm stoked man i could talk all day about the piano stuff so you've opened a pandora's <laughs> box there with me but anyway yeah man thank you for asking so i really appreciate you asking about that it's no it's, i love it's a it's a great project i loved it i immediately dropped it into my ambient playlist that i use as background noise like you were talking about and it fits perfectly i love it so to talk about the new Moon Taxi album and to get into that, I feel like there needs to be a little bit of history I need to put on the forefront just about my relationship with the band. So when did you join the band officially? I, I don't think you were even at my first show because you were like one of the last ones to join, right? I was the last one. Yeah, I still feel like I'm the, the new kid sometimes. I joined in, in somewhere between March of 2007 and you know maybe by the end of that summer, something like that. That was my sophomore going into junior year of college at Belmont. Okay. So you were, you were definitely at my first show then. Cause it was in July of 2008. And since then I've seen you probably 30 plus something times for a while. Every time you guys came to Oxford, I would interview you for the paper, which was like usually at least once, if not two or three times a semester. So that was from like 2009 to 2013. At one point, it was like every single time y'all came to town, Trevor would text me to run merch for you guys that kind of relationship. And there was a couple of times where I was still underage and y'all would sneak me into a, a 21 up bar so that I could see the show with you guys. And that was really cool. So I have a little bit of history with you guys, even though it's been like 10 plus years since I've talked to any of you. So 
that was kind of where I wanted to go with this. It's like when you joined the band, what was the potential that you saw in them? Because I mean, you, you guys have changed a lot since then, but what was the potential you saw in those early days? You know, I, I just really, at the time, I was playing with a couple different bands around Belmont and we actually met at a house party. By the way, let me ask you this. Where did you first see them in, or in 2008? What venue is that? So it was in a pizzeria in Starkville, Mississippi. I think it was called Dave's or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Then I was there. Okay. Cause there were a few shows that summer that I did miss. That's why I wanted to ask. I was at that show that I had summer school for, I had to finish yeah. an accounting class. So I did miss a short run of shows, but yes, I do remember that show. To answer your question though, they were kind of the it band as far as I was definitely from the jam band ilk. I played basically in a fish cover band in high school that kind of stuck around a little bit when college kicked off mostly just kind of around Knoxville. Yeah. Always been a real big fish fan. And, you know, I saw those guys play you enjoy myself at a house party and it was so wrong. And I was like, I, I really got to step <laughs> in here and fix this. If you're going to, if you're going to do him, you got to do it right. So I played that with them. That was really, I mean, my high school band, we, we were, they were really good players that I was lucky enough to play with in high school. And we played mm-hmm. him. I knew it backwards and forwards. So, to be able to sit in with a band, you know, at a house party and know Yim was kind of a good asset for them to have it. Cause it's weird to play Yim without a keyboard. Anyway, there's a freaking piano solo. It's like, you got to have a keyboard. So I did that with them and they were really just good. You know, I liked the songs and, you know, Trevor was so dynamic as a front man and they were just kind of cool, you know, and a lot cooler than me and the bands I was playing with, not to cut down some of those early bands, but they just seemed to be a, a very professional they took it very seriously. They took the merch, the accounting, the business side. They took the Tommy was booking. Tyler did a lot. Trevor did a lot of the merch. Tyler helped a lot with like promotion. Granted, Tyler and I were still in college, so we we didn't have that much time. But they had just graduated and were you know trying to really build it on a serious level and started an LLC and bought a van and got a booking agent and I think late two thousand nine it was an exciting business event, you know, or whatever for me, as young as I was, I joined when I was 19 and, you know, to, to get in there with such serious musicians and, you know, Spencer was the best guitar player at Belmont at the time. Like everyone bowed their, their cap to him. He was, there's nothing he couldn't play. I mean, he, he honestly could, wouldn't, I mean, Trey, you hear, you know, him him bunk around him and all these songs. Spencer could play that blindfolded in his sleep. Some of these just (laughs) insanely complicated. He was just, he was just such a, a whiz. And knew a lot, and I'm definitely from that kind of music theory world. So he and I spoke a lot of the same language. Tyler also a drum major. Tommy was a bass major, but you know it never got too academic or like nerdy. You know, some some bands that come out that are straight out of music school, they just it sounds a little too academic and stiff, and like they they had like a cool sort of very laissez-faire approach to songwriting and jamming and and whatever you know and there was really nothing they'd say no to, which was cool. I mean, obviously we do a lot of editing and fixing stuff, but say, like, oh, let's play this cover tonight. Sure. You know, it was just like a lot of just, it was really, really fun. I loved, I loved them as, as people too. They're all absolutely hilarious. We crack you. All we do when we're together is just laugh about stuff. And so, yeah, long answer. You know me, I'm kind of a chatterbox. So feel free to cut me off. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's evoking all this nostalgia in me. So I'm loving it too. Like, I mean, it really is taking me back 
Because I mean, that's I was thinking about like a lot of those early gigs, those first few years I was going to shows, it you know, it'd be like me and the bartender there, like me and like 15 people. And that's what I wanted to know. Like, I, to me, I remember a gig in Oxford. It was at Proud Larry's. It was 2010. You were playing some song. It was either like Pennies or Tumble. Tumble, which is like long gone in your history now. Long gone. <laughs> but that's it, like Pennies y'all eventually released. And it, but it was unreleased at the time. And the guy next to me was singing along with it. And I was like, this is the first moment where I've noticed you guys are starting to really gain that following. You're starting to get bigger because people are singing songs that you haven't released yet. I want to know for you, what was kind of that moment when y'all started to see that shift? Because I mean, I, I lived it. I feel like I lived it with you guys, but I was wondering when you saw it. What well, felt like the moment we arrived, because it, because as you know, it was not that we were a sensation, but it felt like a, an overnight sensation five years in the making by the time we made it to Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo 2012 was, I think for me, what felt like more of a national audience. You know, I mean, we had, Trevor had, he went to the first Bonnaroo in 2002. I'd been several times before we actually got to play. I saw Fish there for the first time because Fish broke up when I was a senior in, in high school. And then they got back together when I was a senior in college in 09. And I spent all of college just basically only listening to Fish. And was pretty certain that I'd never actually get to see him again. I see him live ever. I'd never seen him before. So when they walked out, man, at Bonnaroo 09, I mean, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, deleted the video because <laughs> I was bawling like a freaking five-year-old. <laughs> and it was like seeing ghosts, like seeing Mozart walk into a room. It was just, I could not believe. I'd never seen them in person or just even like a tray or anything. I mean, it was just absolutely magical, just mesmerizing and so inspiring. And then who knew three years later, we'd be on the same bill with Fish in 2012 again. So, you know, it was, we were at the very bottom of the lineup, but, you know, the stars aligned. We had a new manager at the time who basically convinced through the crowds that we built at Oxford and Birmingham and Atlanta, all those college towns in the Southeast that were within four hours, all those kids were getting to Bonnaroo on a Thursday night. So we played 7.30, that tent in 2012. And, you know, they were chanting our name before we got out there. We opened up with all the rage. And that to me was like, oh shit, this is really starting to catch on. You know, this, we've worked so hard. And there were so many times where we almost got into Bonnaroo. It was just like such a holy grail for us. And like we got, we're, we're in this contest called The Road to Bonnaroo, put on by this local paper that was completely rigged in Nashville, the band that I mean, we, we had won the fan vote by a hundred votes or something. And I was at Mercy Lounge and the band that won were actually writers for the paper that through the, it was just totally rigged. And then we'd like, so it's like, Oh, I guess we got to wait another year. And then we put someone from AC entertainment on the guest list. Well, they didn't show up to see us in Knoxville. It was their assistant. So then they go and say, Oh, well, moon taxi didn't put us on the list. You know, it was just like stuff like that over like, setbacks for like seriously four years and we finally which i'm so glad none of that worked out for all it ultimately we got in on our own it was amazing they didn't put this on like the bud light camping tent you know they <laughs> believed in it i had an amazing slot and we played killing in the name of and you watched maybe three four or five thousand just double you know over the course of like people are walking by like oh shit what is this you know it was here i am literally 13 years later still coming down from it. It'll let, sorry, 11, 11 years later. Yeah, sorry, I'm bad at math. 11 years later, just still, you know, reeling from that whole experience and the, you know, national 
so audience, I mean, we toured with Mata Shahu shortly after that. And, you know, we'd be playing in Washington state in Seattle or Miami. Someone would come up to us and say, you know, we were there at that Bonnaroo and that's why, that's why we're here. And Cabaret came out around that time. It had been out a little, a few months prior. So it was just good timing. You know, we just sort of saw the whole thing grow mostly regionally, but you know, it was the first time we could sort of comfortably get in a bus and tour nationally and just this kind of steady climb from there. And then finally got kind of a quasi hit, if you will, with too high that sort of took it to a little more of a international audience. So it's just, it's been, you know, baby steps all on the way, but it's been a fun ride and we're so excited to see what this next chapter brings. Well, it's you talking about when y'all got that rig. I remember I was interviewing, it was one of the few times I interviewed the whole band at once. I was interviewing you guys in Starkville. I remember it really clearly before one of the gigs, we were sitting outside and I asked about playing Bonnaroo and Tommy was like completely off the record. You can't quote any of this. I'll come after you. And then he told me about all of that. It's funny because I had another question prepared specifically about that conversation. That was the conversation for me when I realized you guys were changing, that you were guys who were maturing and growing as songwriters. Because I remember, I forget what I asked, but I know y'all all collectively agreed like, hey, we're not listening to the same jam band stuff anymore. We're moving on. We're listening to like pop stuff now. We're finding inspiration elsewhere. And you were talking about preparing an album that would become Cabaret eventually. And for me, that was like a a reset for the band. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that period and just like, it was such a transitional period for you guys to go from Melodica in that era to Cabaret and what you are now. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that, that really happened was we got really into production and there were sounds that our instruments weren't creating on their own that synthesized sounds and just you know i wasn't on melodica that that was like right they had just wrapped that about the time i I joined so i think maybe it would have probably been a little different had i been a part of the production aspect of that and i was heavily involved Spencer basically produced cabaret and the thing was that we weren't in my humble opinion going to be on freeze mcgee we were not going to be fish or widespread or any of that. I mean, those guys, it took kind of touring with Umphreys to, to realize, you know, this isn't really where our heart is at, you know, as far as just to go full on like goose twiddle. We want to really dive into the jam scene because those five years between 2007 and 2012 that we were deeply entrenched in the jam scene. We didn't feel like we were getting very far. The, the crowds weren't really growing. It was sort of it felt stagnant and the music felt a bit stagnant and the jams kind of weren't like, obviously I love fish. We all, you know, love the dead. Not to disparage Humphreys. It was just something we didn't, a scene that we didn't really feel like we were probably going to be very successful in. And, and we just, and our hearts weren't really in that. So it kind of took, we actually recorded Cabaret basically twice. We did a very, and those demos are actually on our SoundCloud. If you ever want to hear those like early, more jam full band versions. And we just, you know, we listened to it. I remember very clearly I was at a house party and I think MGMT had just come out and and someone was playing kids or electric feel or something. It was like, God, this shit is so cool. That whole era of empire, of the sun, the Kings of Leon record, grizzly bear, you know, vampire weekend, so many just mind blowing albums left and right. I mean, if you look at animal collective, you know, like that whole period of like, 09 to 
basically 2012. I mean, it was the yeah, yeah, yeah. Just insanely cool stuff because I think streaming sort of came out of that. And you're, you're exposed, you know, you don't have to go dig in a crate to find a cool band, you know, it's a, or look on a blog. It was just one click like, oh, here's an indie playlist. Just We were exposed to a lot of really cool stuff. And I remember being at that party and this guy was playing this really cool, probably, yeah, I think it was the MGMT record. And I said, oh, I'm working on a record with my band. Check it out. And it was just like, a stink bomb or something had gone off in the room. It just cleared <laughs> out like immediately. Like, dang it, what's what are we missing here? And it was like, well, it wasn't a hip way to record at the time. And you know, we were so inspired. Some of those newer, like the Black Keys. I mean, that's not a very good example, but that live version of what we did was not going to translate in the studio. So we reprogrammed a lot of our approach to songwriting and and, and record making. Sort of a combination of a lot of things kind of, that I just mentioned and. So we're glad that we kind of made the shift, but you know, of course, they're going to be the old school fans that are going to raise an eyebrow. I was like, why is this song only two and a half minutes? I get it, <laughs> but we've kind of tightened up the songwriting. And I think this most recent record, I think it's the best example of what is exciting to us sonically now and, and songwriting. And some of it is a bit jammy, you know. I think we took the pop kind of approach, and that's a dirty word in the jam scene. I, I totally realize that, but you know, the little more distinct way of writing i'll say from the last record that no one heard <laughs> probably for good reason we probably took it a little too far then and i think we realized we lost a bit of ourselves in that so now we're sort of i think finally comfortable with taking some risks you know a couple instrumental tracks i sing a song spencer sings a song we're not with a label anymore you know it's the self-release situation which feels totally freeing and liberating creatively. So it's been a really cool moment. And I think the response has been really positive because we've taken the reins back and are really calling all the shots. And you know, some of those decisions may be for better or worse, who knows, but you know, it's all on us though. So it felt really good to kind of get back to those early days where it's just, it felt to me very much like putting together Mountain Beach of Cities or Cabaret because it was just, so all hands on deck, you know? That's great. And that's, I mean, you talking about those songs. I mean, y'all road tested a lot of those cabaret songs for years. I mean, leading up to the release of it. Because I can remember Hypnos in like 2010. And then, you know, I can, like you were talking about too, I can remember the pre-jammy version and then the more indie release version of it. And like just the dynamic difference in the two versions of the songs. I mean, and even when going from like, a small club like Proud Larry's to the Lyric Theater in Oxford, just the way that that song would fill the room was completely different in 2013 versus 2010. So I definitely see that. But the kind of the point I brought up, I know you get tired of probably talking about the jam band stuff, but the point I more wanted to get to with it was like, especially with this new album, I hear the jam roots in it. There was a presser that y'all put out about, and I think Tyler said something about um, trying to get back to your roots and getting the old fan base to agree with the album to like the album but that's i kind of felt like the jam stuff you kind of grew on the hooks in the early days and that kind of carried through is that kind of your interpretation or is that hitting anything yeah i think to an extent that got us a little bit of a a start but again i mean i i will say i we got to kind of call a spade uh, you know like we weren't really i mean we went on a tour in 2010 we called our disaster tour and it was, uh, you know, for two months away from our girlfriends playing for no one. I mean, absolutely no one. I mean, we weren't seriously talking about breaking up, but it definitely felt like it was not 
I mean, it was a lot of like random shows in Maine on a after you know in July, mid July. You know, like no one was there. You know, just it really sort of tested us, and that caught I think was a big impetus. Most I remember playing Mercury in the van on that tour and thinking this is a lot more exciting to me than you know these like just really dark jams that last 13 minutes that you got to be on some really dark drugs to even enjoy. Uh, <laughs> we owe a good bit to the jam scene to help direct us into the path that we took, you know, and jam festivals are great. They're a blast. And, and, and I'm guilty of it myself as a fan of fish, the jam band scenes are, while they're very loyal, they're extremely picky and they're very vocal about it. And fish was constantly in their early days berated in you know message blogs fantasy tour oh that show sucked you know you hear Trey, Trey talking about that actually in 1998 when they did the bittersweet motel documentary he's like well you know they say that everybody you know urinated in their ear so you know i mean it's sort of the the curse of that scene i mean you know you see goose and twiddle and some of these bands pigeons we were good buddies with those guys I mean, but they're just absolutely ripped apart on some of these blogs that, that's just sort of an ugly unfortunate side of, of the scene and we were the brunt of a lot of that and i think maybe we'll just bow out to an extent you know we, we can play but not quite as we're just not as passionate about becoming the great jam band the next fish the next you know and props to the guys in goose they're really nice guys and they deserve everything they have going for them and they have great songs you know and, and the records sound really cool so you know hats off to them they find a, a, a great blending of sort of what we and the revivalists and so many other bands have done or are trying to do well. And so it's, it's a tough line to straddle and, um, and it's easy to get completely ripped apart and want to just quit. But, you know, I, I think it sort of inspired us to just sort of recalibrate and focus our energy on the songwriting and not so much the jamming, you know, hopefully have just enough of that where you can appease a jam fan that's at a show you know, that's the thing. I mean, most jam fans that come to Moon Taxi shows, and I, I guess they still come, don't leave bitching. I, at least I don't see it. You know, I think they we still put on a, a just a song-oriented, not so much jam-oriented kind of show that I think any crowd hopefully would, would like. You know, new era with these new songs. I was talking to Trevor a couple of days ago at the last gig about wanting to make sure that fans new and old because we're most excited, every band, by the way, is most excited about the newest songs. You know, they're not excited as much to play the really, really old stuff that they played a million times. It's, that's why you see Trey constantly doing new projects with brand new material. Goes to the forest, the trio, you know, I get it. I mean, that's, that's what keeps it exciting. So it'll be sort of an interesting approach to the set list for this next tour. And I think we'll probably spend most of July tweaking it and getting it right because you know, we want, we've only got, you know, 90 minutes to two hours and we really want to fit something in there for everybody and make sure everyone's leaving satisfied. And we're leaving so excited that we get to play a lot of the new material. So it'll be an interesting sort of balancing act, but it's kind of what we've always done and it'll be fun. Yeah. Well, that's, and, and I mean, you still have great high energy shows, still always have a great time at your shows, but I want to go back to something you kind of said a minute ago about Silver Dream and just kind of how it seems like that has kind of left a sour taste in your mouth or you maybe want to move forward from that project a little bit. What happened and how are you growing on the new album to change that? That was just sort of a, an odd time for us. The number one reason I say that is, is COVID. I mean, that came out 
early 21, you know, for whatever reason, I think our team or maybe it's just the general vibe of the music business at that time was, oh, well, as soon as New Year's Eve 21 hits, that whole COVID thing, that's only 2020. That's behind. Well, you know, then we have Omicron. We, you know, we, we just, we put it out at a time when we thought we could go out and tour and support the record and we could not. And the shows that we did were pretty poor. Most, not all, but a good amount of them were, were pretty low attendance and awkward and uncomfortable. And it just, you know, we couldn't go to AAA radio stations and support it. Just a really kind of isolating, weird time. And, and, and a lot of the songs on that record came out of a deal that we had with a major label that we signed with after Too High took off. So we had written about half of Let the Record Play, maybe a little more. And by the time we signed that record deal in late, 2017 or early 18 we signed we were dropped in 2019 which is the case for many rock bands <laughs> signed to major labels these days but basically they kind of wanted to take advantage of too high and see what happened it was a bad fit you know and we learned our lesson we kind of had to do it once in our career just try the major label thing a lot of the songs on silver dream were written with amazing songwriters, not to disparage any of them. I mean, Busby, this guy, Drew Falk. I mean, some of the best writers in the game. We went out to LA with and wrote a lot of songs on that record. And I think we were maybe just a little disillusioned or maybe had some things dangled in front of us that, oh, you know, you're really going to take the leap to like Imagine Dragons level. Not that that particular band excites us. You know, the... the <laughs> The grass is greener kind of scenario where, oh, you, you know, you can really take a massive, massive step forward. So a lot of those were probably in the mindset of, oh, I think a lot of people are really going to like this. Flash, we don't really like, this. you know, it's like there were some, even the lead single say, I don't know that we played that once. None of us like it. But you go in with a really amazing producer who's super excited about it. And you go, God, well, this guy thinks it's, you send it to some tastemaker friends. They're like, yeah, you know, but sometimes songs make a little too much sense. Some of the biggest hits and lasting songs, you kind of go, how is this? You know, it's sort of cocks your head a little bit. Some of those, they're just like kind of right down the middle. There's really no creativity. You know, it didn't really feel, it just felt really stale. Some of the like lyrics were just so just trite and vapid to us. Now, I mean, we can literally... We can make fun of now. We, we were talking about re-releasing that record and have it being like four tracks, the only four that we actually <laughs> like. <It's> del- deluxe edition. <laughs> and you know, honestly, like if I put that on record on that record on now, there'd be a couple cringe moments, but for the most part, you know, there there's some good. I think the best songs were the ones that we wrote together. I really like, you know, light up. I like the beginning. I'm just very proud of pretty much. I, I have poured so much of myself into pretty much every track that I stand behind all those records that I just mentioned, obviously the exception of the, of the previous one, because it came from us. We were proud of it. We were excited about it. We put our, our handprints are on it. You know, you hear our fingers moving on the track. So it was a weird time. And I'm really glad that now I think moving forward, it, it'll just be us making records together. You know, we had a, one outside producer who sort of helped us reach our vision. It was totally just because we're all so busy. We needed someone to sort of help us out. This guy, Brennan Ertz, who's fantastically talented and a very good friend. So 
just having people in your inner circle for jobs like that is really great. You know, I mean, you look at Tame Impala, it's just such a singular force and fish, you know, it comes from, you know, it's just a really, I think fans can sniff out when, when other cooks are in the kitchen and we really pride ourselves on being able to take on all the creative responsibility. I mean, you saying all that really does fill in a lot of gaps for a 15 year old, a 15 year fan like myself. I mean, that's it. Tyler's comment does catch a little bit better about the old fan base and reconnecting and, you know, things like that. I mean, definitely songs like Unstoppable and Sunbeam and Walk Out, like those definitely satisfy like the Melodica fan that I, you know, when I came on board, those definitely call me back. Great to hear. And I mean, not that, and I want to be very clear, I have never not been a fan. I have enjoyed every release so far that y'all have put out. So I want to be very clear about that as well. But I mean, like kind of as we start to wrap up, that's what looking forward 15 years, is there another 15 years in the Moon Taxi Bank? Are we going to see another Silver Dream incident or what have we got coming? <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, no, there, there would be yeah another five years if we did that again. No, <laughs> I, I think there are a couple obviously little things that are just going to happen with bands and you know, I go, is it going to snowball into something that's just something we can't fix? But man, it, you know, it's, it's to have joined when I was 19 in like, what, two, three years, it'll be half my life in this band. No, I want it to be next year. Good Lord. Jesus. Anyway, yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, we've had kids together. There's been a divorce. There's been many girlfriends. You know, there's just been through a lot. We have each other's back. It's crazy that not only are we still a band after all these years? We're, we're really still friends. And I think we can call on each other for, for anything. And Tommy and I play golf and Tyler fills in. We, we, we see each other more and more outside of the band scenario, which has been really cool. I don't see Trevor as much because he's living in Franklin now. But yeah, I mean, you know, we all take it very seriously. We don't do anything. You know, this is our primary job. So we, we communicate a lot. We talk about it. We take it very seriously. And, you know, when records come out, I mean, you know, if one guy started to get lazy, the whole operation, you know, it's like any, you have like a weak link, it sort of brings down the ship. So we all really try to pour everything into it. Obviously with kids, it's a little harder and, and obviously fatigue can wear in after a while, but we fortunately have a really good agent and a really good manager that respects our time at home first time on the road and is realistic about new music and, and when it's going to happen and not rushing anything, you know, you know, and our wives are friends and they'll hang out when we're off the road. It, it's all, it's really, it's a nice, we're in a good spot, you know, and this next tour is, is going to be probably the busiest where we've been since, oh God, probably 2018. I mean, you know, like we hit it so hard after too high hit in like 2017, 2018. I mean, we played a, New Year's Eve show from 28, yeah, 18 to 19 here. That was basically in an arena. It was about 4,500 tickets. Most we, most hard tickets we sold in Nashville. It was, it was amazing. And we kind of chilled in 2019, just sort of decom- to decompress, just did a lot of kind of soft ticket, private, kind of focused on writing the next record along with just sort of not playing as many shows. And then 2020 hit. And then... 2021 wasn't that much better for us. So really snapping us back to a a bygone era, it feels like, to play this many shows. But it's great. I mean, we're all stoked. We're, you know, hopefully going to come out with our best 
live presentation yet. We're working on a great light rig. We're, you know, we, we love our crew. They're as much of a part of the band as, as the five of us. So and we're playing a lot of places that, you know, where are you living now? Are you in? I'm in Memphis. Memphis. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, well, next time we we just played there, Bill Street, but yeah, you did. It's fun to, you know, kind of hit these places that we've been, because it's a lot of Southeast states, you know, been hitting for a while and it'll be good to see old friends. Like we just played in Jackson, Mississippi in the parking lot of uh, Martin's and it was such a trip, you know, such a trip to see some of these old friends that we hadn't seen. And so I'm sure there'll be a lot of that, you know, seeing people we haven't seen since COVID. So. Yeah, it's just a you know it, it's good to be in this band right now, and you know we didn't really do too many festivals this summer, so hopefully that'll gear up more next year, and because I think that's really our bread and butter festival scene, so that'll be hopefully popping off next year. So yeah, onward we go. Yeah, well that's I mean it just kind of as we wrap up here it, for me to go from that first show where there was like maybe fifteen people there in a pizza shop. And then one of the last times I saw you was live on the green, live at the green, whatever it was in Nashville. And there was what, 10, 15,000 people there. I mean, it was, I was way, way in the back and it was just absolutely packed. I mean, it was, it was really cool because I, I can still remember that night after seeing you guys for the first time, calling my girlfriend at the time and just being like, these guys got something special. Like there's something here. They're going to take the next step. And so for me, like as a fan, like to see that kind of evolution and to see you grow like that, like it was a really rewarding moment to be on this side of it as a fan. So I just want to say congrats. Cool, man. Like it was really cool. Thank you, man. That really means a lot. Yeah. And, you know, we shivers our nightmares really to think that, you know, any of our old fans would, would think that we're headed in a direction that neglects those early days or, you know, that we're not still very much a part of that through line and that, that thread because we do cherish those early days so much and in a way it was as fun back then as it, as it is now you know it's, it was so exciting and you know you're really curious what this next era will bring so you know hopefully people get a little bit more rally the troops a bit it seems to be really resonating with, with people the new record i mean seems to be really resonating with old fans and you know hopefully they'll bring on a whole new legion of, of new folks on board and the, and the shows will just be a celebration of all of it. Really. I mean, we were playing like, who do you think you are? I think on the last, maybe two years, two tours ago, but you know, we're not just like leaving it in the dust. It's definitely part of what we do. We just, you know, and somebody will request, Oh, why don't you play Gimme Lie? Why don't you play pennies and all this stuff? We tried it. You know, I remember playing pennies at a gig in Knoxville and it was just like, Three people knew it, you know, and they're having, you know, the time of their life. But then you're sacrificing the other 2,000 people there that are going, what is this? You know, you're like, well, (laughs) have him tell you. So, you know, we we, kind of got to look at the big picture and just serve the show, serve the audience, give them a good time. So expect some, some deep cuts, expect some surprises, hopefully some new covers. Yeah. So it's an exciting era for sure. Well, Wes, thanks so much for your time today, man. It's been a pleasure to catch up, chat again. I really love the new album. I encourage people to listen to it. Thanks so much, man. Right on, Lance. Take care, man. Congrats again. Hey, appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for listening to another episode of my show. For more live music podcasting, check out our other show, Jam Journals. If you're feeling kind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And check us out on all the social media platforms. Email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com or visit our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. So until next time, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, 
And most importantly, take care of your shoes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.